The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. You may have heard that Russia has launched a wave of airstrikes against cities across uh, Ukraine, including Kiev, leaving at least 12 people dead. Ten people, including a child, were killed in an attack that hit a block of flats in Uman. Paul Rogers, Professor Emeritus at Bradford University, joins me now. Paul, good morning. Good morning. Hello. Um, We'll talk about Sudan in a moment because I know you've been uh, concentrating a lot of work on what's going on in Sudan and what the likely outcome might be of uh, any uh, ceasefires or resolution. But the war that's been going on for over a year now is that in uh, Ukraine. More attacks overnight. What is the purpose, do you believe, of these attacks? I think the purpose is mainly symbolic. The war itself is deeply bogged down. Um, The Russians cannot sort of, they're finding it difficult to even hold the land that they have, but the Ukrainians are facing Russian troops which are very well dug in. And for the Ukrainians to advance, it could be coming at a considerable cost. At the same time, the Ukraine army has largely re-equipped and retrained And it seems to be ready for an offensive, what's known as a spring offensive, even though we're nearly in May. And that is to try and push the Russian forces a lot back in the eastern part of Ukraine and perhaps even split the Russian forces that are stretched out over several hundred miles into two different groups. Uh, As far as we can see, what the Russians are therefore doing on occasions is to do what they can do, and that is use what is now their rather limited stock of long-range air-launched cruise missiles directed against Ukrainian cities. Um, They do this on occasions. They did quite a lot during the winter. And then there's been something of a pause for really for more than a month. But when they do it, they unleash a lot of these missiles. Half to three quarters get shot down by the Ukrainian air defenses. But some get through. This is what happened last night because it's pretty indiscriminate. One of the issues is that the Russians are finding it difficult to produce really accurate missiles so they can't tackle sort of target precisely as they could which means that if they're targeting a large housing complex wherever it lands it's going to kill people Uh, and it's really a a very sort of humanitarian terms a very bad affair because innocent people are getting killed left right and center but this is symbolic it's really to remind the ukrainians that even if they go for their big military offensive, and even if they take some territory, the Russians still have a way of getting back at them. So it's a kind of warning signal at this precise time. Now, you mentioned the Russians uh, producing these cruise missiles and not being able to do so with uh, accurate uh, targeting abilities. Um, How big is their armaments manufacturing? Do they source elsewhere? We know they have bought drones from Iran. Um, Who is supplying them? Well, obviously, they have a a very well-developed arms industry, you know, developed over many, many years, sort of the best part of a century, in fact. And uh, that has been reconstituted. It went right downhill in the 1990s with all all the economic problems. But Putin has made a point in the last 20 years to try and rebuild that. So there is very, very much a home-based capacity. And uh, in some areas, they can produce things completely from by themselves with all their own means. I mean, they, they can produce artillery shells in almost unlimited numbers, the same with sort of the standard tanks. Where they find it more difficult is when they want the more specialist electronics uh, to provide the high degrees of accuracy. And quite a lot of those were actually bought from outside. And this is where the sanctions have actually had an effect. It's not total, 
because there are always a way around sanctions. You know, you can get a, a friendly neighboring country by buying them in legitimately, say from a Taiwan or a, or a Western producer, and then passing them on to Russia. But it's limited Russia's capacity to produce the really accurate versions of their standard weapons. And so what they do is just use ones which just aren't quite as, as accurate as they should be. And that's the, it's one area where the sanctions is having some sort of effect on the whole war process on the Russian side. But by and large, Russia is a major industrial power. I mean, after all, you know, it was involved in the space race and the rest. And that has not been lost. They do have the technologies. Now, what's going on, obviously, is something of a, a military stalemate at the moment. We await at the, that spring offensive, uh, should it happen. But, it, you know, this kind of standoff reminds me of those late night trade union negotiations between governments and the trade unions or employers and the trade unions. And eventually everyone's so tired, but somebody blinks and we get a settlement. Um, this is a rather more brutal kind of process that we're seeing in Ukraine. But is that what's going on here, that each party trying to dig in with as much territory as possible for the inevitable peace talks? There may be an element of that. I mean, the reality is, and I think this is a view that some of us held for a long time, there is no alternative in this war to a negotiated settlement. Because in a sense, neither side can win but neither side can lose. Um, the Ukrainians can push very hard and take territory, but if the Russians were really pushed back, then they would threaten to escalate, maybe to chemical or possibly even tactical nuclear weapons. Um, the Ukrainians know they can't push it too far. On the other hand, if the Russians were able to summon up even more forces and have a major impact on Ukraine and take more territory, then NATO has so much riding on this in terms of its own status that it would ensure that Ukraine got all the weapons it needed to resist that. Um, and so there has to be a settlement at some stage. Uh, the sooner the better, might one, are, might one say, but at the moment there's no sign of it. I mean, the Ukrainians uh, privately probably know that there has to be a settlement. It's not at all clear that Putin has come to accept that under any circumstances. And he seems quite stable in his position. And support for the war within Russia is, does not seem to be diminishing very much, not as much as people expected, mainly because he has portrayed the war as NATO against Russia. And Russia is standing up to the West, which has expanded had, had brought in member states far closer to Russia than before, and it sees Russia as being threatened by the Western powers, which are so huge. Uh, now, that may be very difficult for people to take on our side, but if you get the view from Moscow, that is what he's played on. So the net effect is neither side is currently at least officially interested in negotiating, which is why the war is going on. And American strategists, who one would normally say are pretty competent, you know, the some very competent people there. Uh, they see this war going on for at least another year with all the human costs involved. Now, what about President Xi of China and his conversation with Zelensky, which went on quite a, a while, I think it was more than an hour, and they had meaningful dialogue. And uh, President Xi was talking about respecting the territorial integrity of nations. And, you know, you put Taiwan into that mix and you wonder, but what is China up to here? Well, China has been playing it right down the middle. I mean, it says that it supports Russia, um, but there's very little evidence so far that it has provided any material support. Uh, there are claims, but not much to that. So I think, essentially, on balance, uh, uh, China would prefer to see Russia come out of this okay. 
because it does see Russia as a, a state which is far, far weaker economically, but still strong, quite strong militarily, and of course has massive land territories. Um, Russia may well see it as the sort of the kingpin in the new world order, but China does, and China with a much larger economy is in a stronger position. So I think she actually sees the situation playing into China's hands. It would prefer the war to end with Russia in a reasonable condition, um, but it doesn't mean that that means that Russia has to get its own way in Ukraine at all. The other issue, I think, is that the, the Chinese are looking to the longer term and their concern with where China stands in what they see as the intense competition with the West, particularly with the United States. And that's where we have the prospect of a very dangerous arms race. The one thing to add is in all of this, um, the world is just getting more and more armaments. I mean, talk about Shakespeare and you know, Henry V now thrive the armorers. You've never seen anything like it since the height of the Cold War. We're now spending more money than the, uh, right at the top of the Cold War, and that's allowing for inflation. That seems to be an appalling waste of human resources, but that's where we are. Now, moving to Sudan and uh, the extension of the ceasefire by three days, uh, a somewhat fragmented ceasefire, but a ceasefire nonetheless, allowing for the evacuation of, uh, of many people. Uh, the big powers are also players in this conflict, uh, however indirectly. They are, both the big powers and also uh, many of the neighbouring states. Uh, I mean, it looks as though there might be sufficient leeway for uh, foreigners who want to get out of Sudan to do so. Um, and if the essentially the ceasefire holds for another three days, probably the majority of those who want to leave will be able to leave. But of course, for Sudanese themselves, we're talking about probably hundreds of thousands of people who would want to get out in, in the face with a, a really pretty terrifying war zone. And there's no way that they can go long distances. I mean, at present, they're going into um, Ethiopia, into uh, Eritrea, and some certainly up into Egypt. As far as I know, very few down into South Sudan or indeed into Chad or Libya. But essentially, there are many people who really want to try and get out from the war zone. Um, but that is not of concern to the Western world. The Western world just focuses on its own people, as you probably would expect. But if we move to an era where... Sudan has a degree of stability, however that turns out, then a lot of states will be vying for position to exploit a country which potentially could be really pretty rich. It does have lots of resources. And those states include the likes of Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and probably individual uh, militia leaders in places like Libya. Uh, and the real risk is that a very weakened and uh, unstable Sudan will be prey uh, to groups, states and others, that basically want to make a killing one way or the other. Uh, it's putting it very bluntly, but that, I think, is the reality at the moment. I mean, the thing you have to remember is that, you know, when Bashir, the original autocrat who was in power for nearly 30 years, when he went, he went because of massive, non-violent public demonstrations. Quite extraordinary. This is the early part of 2019. So much so that eventually people in the army could, in a sense, change their allegiance. And when that happened, then you know, Bashir was out of it like, you know, like Greece lightning. So in, in fact, within Sudan, there was a very strong public movement, nonviolent protests to try and get political change. That has all been sidelined completely by these two generals who are basically fighting it out. And I'm, my personal view is that at the very least, states who actually 
bear Sudan well in the real terms should be backing anything which makes basically a democratic transition possible. Uh, One doesn't see it at the moment, but that is what we should be working for. Paul Rogers, thank you very much for uh, joining us on the programme. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9am on News Talk.